Well, happy Coronation Day. It's May 6th, 2023, and we have a special collector's edition of Morning Meeting for you today. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your royal crazed airmail editors who think we've died and gone to heaven. Yeah, I feel like we started the week with the Met Gala, which saw its own strange customs and pretenders to the throne of social importance. And we're closing out with Charles taking the throne and you in the thick of it today in London, right? Michael, I can't even express how excited I am. I don't even want to tell you what I'm wearing. It's too embarrassing. But let's just say it is red, white and blue royal colors. I even have some purple in there. My children are all decked out. We've got a street party happening here in Kensington. We have had lots of people at the pubs late at night last night. It's going to be late at night again today. Let's just say there's a lot of joy. And I find it so extraordinary and heartening the way that this country manages to unite behind the monarchy, even though it's troubled and even though it has its moments. There's a real sense of national unity here in London that has to be the envy of so many other countries around the world. The funniest thing I saw this week is if you look at the guest list and the strangest guest I saw who RSVP'd yes was Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds, a legendary, very dark singer, wrote on his newsletter this week. I'm a big fan of the real family and I'll be there as a member of the Australian delegation. So just interesting to see who's showing up. But I just want to remind you, I need that coronation swag, coronation tat sent my way. Honey, what do you want? I've got the entire Emma Bridgewater collection at home just waiting for you. Come on over, pick up a piece, take it home. Like I'm a one woman gift shop at this point. Well, I'll take one of everything, but let's get to today's episode. It's a great show. It's a great week and it's a great day. And we've got Howard Bloom, who's been reporting for us on the horrific murders of those four college students in Idaho. He's going to be joining us to reveal the series of improbable breakthroughs, as well as the unlikely cast of unsung heroes who nabbed the suspect in those killings, Brian Koberger. And then Emine Sevim, who is a photo editor here at Airmail, joins us to talk about what might well be one of the most consequential elections in the past few years. It's not in America. It's in her home country of Turkey. And finally, many of you are familiar with the brilliant travel writer and novelist Peter Matheson. Recently, his late son Lucas published a memoir about growing up with Matheson as his father. And our writer, Ben Ryder Howe, has a look at this riveting book. So it's a great show. And Ashley... Where would you like to begin on this coronation day? Oh, from royals to murders, Michael, why not? <laughs> You're like Shakespeare. Yeah, I think probably everyone is hoping that we've got Stu Heritage and Bassie Chamberlain and Joseph Bullmore, all of our regulars on here to tell us everything about the coronation. No, that is being covered elsewhere. You can get that in your Daily Mail and your Times of London. We are here to talk about murder in Idaho specifically. And Howard Bloom is here with the fourth part of his opus on the Idaho murders and the alleged killer, Brian Koberger. Howard is a writer at large for Airmail and the author of several books, including American Lightning, Terror, Mystery, The Birth of Hollywood, and The Crime of the Century. And he's currently at work on a book about the Idaho student murders for HarperCollins. Welcome, Howard. Nice to speak with you again. All right. We've got Brian Koberger coming up with a court appearance in several weeks. Can you tell us what exactly has developed in the case since we last spoke? Well, what has developed is a bit of a secret because of the gag order. A judge has decided, in her wisdom, actually, that the press should not have access to what is happening in the case. This gag order is being challenged by one of the families of murder victims and many press organizations, and there's going to be a hearing on May 25th. Then, a month later, more or less, on, on June 28th, Koberger will have to go and have a hearing in the Idaho courtroom where the evidence against him will be this presented, and he will have to enter a plea, whether he's going to plead guilty or not guilty, 
and whether or not there will be a trial. While all this has been happening, I have been writing around trying to get different pieces, as are many other reporters have been going around and trying to piece together this story, which has many moving parts. You've got a lot of moving parts in your terrific story this week, where you look at the unsung heroes and the improbable breaks that allowed people to capture Koberger. Who stands out most in this story? Because it's a sweeping story. But I mean, if you had to pick one person here, who is you think like, this guy's unbelievable? Really? decision that I think is important that hasn't come up before is a member of the Idaho State Forensic Lab, a man by the name of Matthew Gamet. He's the one who heads the lab. And it's not so much what his lab did, but he had the insight to enter into a contract with a genetics forensic firm, a firm called Thoughtfirm. And he did this before, a year before, or six months really, before the murders took place. And he was, did this basically to try to help solve cold cases. This firm, based in the Woodlands, Texas, which is a suburb about 20 minutes north of Houston, has done fantastic work into looking into cold cases, identifying victims who had previously been forgotten. Their cases have been just buried away. And this Idaho forensic specialist had been impressed with the job that they did on a, a case where a body was found near the Snake River in Idaho. And this case had just could not be solved. And Othram did the genetics that allowed them to get an identity of this person. He entered into the contract with them. Now comes the Idaho student murders. They had a bit of DNA evidence. This was on the knife sheet. And what they had on the knife sheet was a microscopic bit of DNA. Usually in a crime scene investigation, you get 100 cells. You can work with that. This, according to people involved in the investigation, was less than 20, maybe as few as 10. The Idaho Forensic Laboratory couldn't really work with this, but they had the wisdom to send it to Othram in Texas. But first, to make the match, because they couldn't find Koberger, the suspect, in any databases, they had to get something close to them. So what they have, the Pennsylvania State Police do what the state police are now calling the great garbage raid. They go into the Koberger residence in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, into their trash cans, take out some DNA, material with DNA. They ship it to Idaho, which gets it to Texas, and they're able to, what Othram discovers, to prove that the DNA on the knife sheet is related to the father of the man on the knife sheet, the Michael Kohlberger's father. So through that convoluted route, they are able to identify Kohlberger. And why this is so important is that up to this point, all the information, all the evidence they've been getting, it's not really great evidence. It's pretty circumstantial stuff. It's not enough to get an arrest warrant. That's why the police have to stand back impotently and allow Koberger to drive off on Christmas to go home to Pennsylvania and to drive really across country because they don't have enough to arrest him. They're watching him, but until they get this bit of confirming DNA evidence, they just have to stand back. And now when they have this, the case can gallop forward and they can storm the house and arrest him. Howard, have we learned anything else about the relationship or the lack thereof between Koberger and the victims? There's all sorts of speculation. I have not so far learned anything that I can say on the record I would want to talk about. I'm trying to put the pieces together. I've seen things in print that say he had known the victims, he had communications, he had photographs of them. I'm not quite sure that's accurate. I wouldn't want to impugn another reporter's work. 
All this will come up, no doubt, at the June 28th hearing. What I did find interesting about a week ago, I was at the Salles University in Central Valley, Pennsylvania. That's where Koberger got his master's degree in criminology. And what they have at the Salles is a murder scene house, a crime scene house. And you go in there and they have mannequins pulled across the living room floor. They have red paint on them as if they were victims. And Kohlberger, as a student, had participated in trips to this crime scene house. Interestingly enough, one of his professors that he studied under at the Salles is a woman by the name of Dr. Catherine Ramsland. She's a noted authority on serial killers, on the minds of serial killers. She's a forensic psychologist, a scholar of great renown. And she writes how a fantasy becomes embedded in the mind of a potential serial killer. And he lives with this fantasy only long enough until he demands to make it become a reality. And I could sort of see this journey of building rage within Kohlberger's mind as a scene walking through a crime scene house with mannequins and in his distorted view of reality, the building rage tried to make this imagined scene a reality. And perhaps that too is something that leads to what put him over the edge on that night in Idaho. Howard, one of the things you do so well when you have that scene in your story is his professors there just described him as, quote, a brilliant student. And I think what you've done so well is get into the mind of this alleged killer. And I think that's what's so terrific about the story this week. And then seeing his mind and people trying to find who this person is. So it's a terrific piece of reporting and synthesizing this week, I have to tell you. Thank you. I mean, the challenge of getting into a mind like that, it's a mind where you, you're still searching for a motive or one is still searching for a motive. And again, I'm brought back to the fair and reality that we will never really get a true motive. We might find a reason that makes sense to a killer, but I don't think we'll make sense. We'll find a reason that will give us any logical explanation that, that will be satisfied in any way, shape, or form. Howard, when Koberger appears next in court, what will you be watching for? I'll be watching for the case against him. I'd like to see if the authorities have been able to make the connections that, in fact, he knew some of the victims. He had prior relationships with them. I am pursuing some area that he might have gone to a party we were there. That's perhaps some, you do a hint at the next piece I'm going to write, but that's sort of conjecture. I also think they will try, and I think they might be succeed in doing, the events that led to an alleged sort of mental breakdown. He had been fired from his job at Washington State University. And the specifics of that firing, I think, will be interesting to hear in the courthouse. I think that will be revealed. And then, ultimately, we want to hear Koberger's attorneys, how they plan to defend this. They have called or tried to subpoena one of the surviving eyewitnesses from that night. She's fighting that subpoena. She doesn't want to testify. And one can certainly understand that. Who would want to relive such a traumatic experience? But what is interesting to me is why it's the defense that called her, not the prosecution. What does the defense think she'll be able to contribute that will help build Koberger's case? That's one of the key questions of the June 28th hearing. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to speak with you again about this, among with many other matters, but this story is so gripping. Thank you so much. A pleasure speaking with you as always. Thank you, Howard. Keep up the great work. All right. Talk to you guys. Bye-bye. 
Well, an absolutely chilling story, but one that is really beautifully told by Howard. Yeah, and again, it's just the layers of reporting he's been doing on the story just shows in this week's story. Make sure you read the whole story. Next, Michael, I think we need a palate cleanser. Before we move on to the political situation in Turkey, let's talk about the novelist and travel writer Peter Matheson. Peter Matheson, the late great novelist and travel writer who died in 2014, gets yet another close-up with the publication of a new memoir by his late son, Lucas Matheson. Lucas died last fall before this book was published. So we've got Ben Ryder Howe, a former editor at the Paris Review, Matheson's old stomping ground, as well as the author of the book, Mike Riandelli, Risking It All for a Convenience Store, is here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Ben. Okay, Ben, before we get into the tragic tales of both Peter and Lucas Matheson, let's talk about the Paris Review. You were an editor there. Did you overlap with them at all? I mean, Peter was a board member when I was there. I mean, I remember seeing him in the office. And then towards the very end, he was part of a group of board members who was very involved with figuring out the review's future when George Plumpton died. So I had some interaction with him then. The most vivid memory I have of Peter was visiting him in the Hamptons. I can't remember why, but I think I was sent on an errand to... At his, or deliver something. I would love to know what it was. And I went to his house and I grew up sort of worshiping him as a writer and was frequently sent on those kinds of errands to visit someone who I'd grown up reading. But I was totally unprepared for what I got, for what I saw when I got there because I just thought I was going to his like summer house or something. And of course it was this Zen retreat, which I should have expected. But I think that house is now an actual Zen shrine in the Hamptons that is accessible to the public. And it was not what I was expecting. I can't remember if he was like in his robes and if there was incense burning or anything like that. But he was very much a creature of the Hamptons. So he was probably holding a drink and surrounded by beautiful people. So we've got this new book out by Peter Matheson's late son. But can you tell us for people who may not know who was Peter Matheson and what is his place in American literature? I think it's a really telling question because at one time he was the base of American literature. I don't believe that he has the recognition nowadays that you would expect given the position that he held at that time. He was a Brit, in my mind, between the Hemingway generation and whatever exists now. He was a writer who was a sort of chest-thumping badass explorer going places where back then they would describe it as the first white guy to go to this or that place. And he would write these heavyweight, humorless dispatches from the mountains or the jungles or wherever, but he was out there risking his life. And the reason I say he was a bridge was that he did this, but he embraced progressive causes in the process of doing this. He was Hemingway, an evolved version of a Hemingway in that he was out there bringing back the news of injustice. And I was thinking about a quote I remember reading about George Plimpton a few years ago, just that George, somebody, I think it was an anonymous quote in the Times that said that George would have toppled like a dead tree in the Me Too era. I feel like Matheson would have in a way too, because he was the ultimate white savior, writing about Native people around the world. Very consciously, he said, this is my job, this is what I'm here to do. And he did it very effectively. That was his life's mission as he saw it. So somehow, though, he has slipped a little bit just in terms of his readership. Maybe that's all too predictable in a way. But I was interested to see that Penguin has this series of classics. I think it's called The Orange. It's their line of 
contemporary classics. It's a really select group of authors. And The Snow Leopard is one of their books. That was what he was hoping for and what he achieved. Sort of like Hemingway. I mean, larger than life, complicated relationship with his family. And along comes his son now with this new book, right? Who, his son had his own demons and tragedies as well. And sort of now we get the view of Matheson from his son, right? Can you tell us about the new book? So he had several kids. He was married a few times. And Lucas was his oldest son. He was born in the 50s, and Peter was probably in his mid-20s when Lucas was born. And at that time, that was a very hard-partying group of writers. They were in Paris, then they were in Manhattan, and then they moved out to the Hamptons eventually. A lot of famous people like William Styron, George Plimpton. This is when Peter founded the Paris Review. I mean, really, it's one of American literature's golden eras, 1950s Paris, and then 1960s Manhattan. Every famous writer was sort of circulating in this group. And Lucas had the misfortune of being born at that time, which is, he writes in the early scenes of this memoir, which came out six months ago. He writes about being, drinking his first beer on the roof of his parents' West Village brownstone while they were downstairs drinking the weekend away. And so Lucas grew up wanting to be a writer, tried to be his father for about six months, and then really succumbed to addiction in an accelerated way in his 20s. And by the time he was, I would say, 27, 28, he was in a death spiral and had been fired, had not just been fired, but had no job prospects because he'd become, reputation was so bad for being drunk all the time. His marriage was failing. His health was failing. I mean, he really, I mean, he was drinking a fifth of vodka a day and he got help and he, and it turned his life around, not just in terms of getting him clean and sober, but it gave him his life's mission. He became a drug addiction counselor and a very successful one, an administrator of facilities in the New York area. But really, he hadn't figured out what was, I think, really bothering him, which was his relationship with his father. And so that's, the book is about those two battles, plus the fact that he was born with a rare disease that gradually made him blind. And it's a memoir of overcoming these afflictions. Ben, how did reading this book for you change your impressions of Peter Matheson, the writer? It really didn't for two reasons. One, I think if you've read a lot of Peter's work and if you've read about Peter, you know he was an absent father. The Snow Leopard, the book I mentioned before, the Penguin Classic, is a memoir of climbing the Himalayas, going on a long journey of self-discovery in the Himalayas in the mid-70s. It's an incredible book, not just because of the writing, but because of the journey itself. He was an incredible explorer. I mean, he writes about like, I mean, he did this in sneakers or primitive hiking boots. I mean, he was really an incredible, incredibly brave and tough guy. He took this trip, however, shortly after his wife died of cancer. And he writes about this and it's been written about. I'm not reporting anything new here. He left a bunch of kids who were dealing with the death of a parent to go on this journey of self-discovery. And makes you gasp when you think about it. He writes in the book about, you miss my kids, and you're like, they miss you. That wasn't like thrown to find out that he was an absent father. One of the other pieces that the book touches on, obviously how Lucas stumbled into revealing what is now a sort of commonly known fact about Peter, which was his involvement, not only in starting the Paris Reviews, but maybe his associations that were with the CIA. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Yes. So Peter worked for the CIA in the 1950s, and this was obviously secret until the mid-70s when the New York Times reported it. The New York Times did a long story about how the CIA used 
arts organizations, I would say, to do a kind of elevated propaganda, right? I mean, they were fighting the Soviet Union on that front as well, the cultural front, and they threw a lot of money at serious art. And this is not a new story. Uh, Matheson at the time was, as I said, like uh, one of the most famous writers alive. So that was a big deal to find out that he had been taking money from the CIA. He was very upset about it. The CIA at the time was also becoming known for dropping people out of helicopters. And these were in the places that Peter was writing about injustice. And so to be connected with that was, I think, very upsetting for him and bad for his brand. So the interesting thing is that it was gradually forgotten over the next 20 years, even though it was reported in the Times. And it resurfaced again, I want to say in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And at that time, he kind of had to go back and fight that battle all over again and defend himself and say like, hey, listen, the 1950s were different. CIA hadn't gone bad yet. I was doing it for the right reasons. And then I got out before I really did something I didn't want to do. And But his story changed constantly and it never really felt like he was leveling. And books have been written about that period and about the way that American dissident writers at the time were persecuted. People had files assembled on them. And there's always been a question of like a guy like Peter out there collecting information on his communist friends. So this comes out in the book. There's a revelation in the book about this. It turned out that Lucas was the reason that the New York Times found out about his father working for the CIA. He was at a party at George Plimpton's one Christmas, was talking to a reporter, told him, and it ended up in the paper a few weeks later. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your wonderful essay, your thoughts here. And we can't wait to talk to you again soon. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Ben. And once again, the title of the book is First Light, A Journey Out of Darkness by Lucas Matheson. Okay, Michael, favorite Peter Matheson book, go. I still have to go with The Snow Leopard, which is funny because Matheson always wanted to see himself more of a fiction writer. But as we note, he also is, I think, one of the only writers to win National Book Award for nonfiction as well as fiction. Which takes us to my favorite, 2008's Shadow Country. There you go. We covered the basis then. It brings us full circle and makes for a fabulous transition. All right, now, Michael, now we've got to get to politics. We have some even more serious matters, which is to say why life in Turkey has been so unbearable and whether or not there's any hope for a new day dawning with this upcoming election. Yeah, Recep Erdogan, who has been the president of Turkey for the last eight years and also fashioned himself as a strongman, now faces an election and is predicted to lose to a moderate challenger. Among the looming questions, however, is this one. Is this the end of a long period of turmoil or just a new phase? MNA Sevim, one of our beloved colleagues at Airmail, is a native of Turkey and she has a lot of family there and has for generations. And she's here to tell us how the political situation there is impacting the lives of everyday Turks. Welcome, MNA. Thanks for having me. We have a historical election in Turkey, the most consequential, as you write, since 2002. What exactly is at stake? Well, I think it's the same question as always, which is an identity question. As you note in your essay this week, all this is taking place against the background of a, another earthquake, as the country often seems to come with an unfortunate regularity. So tell us a bit about like how that is also affecting the election and, you know, I think charges of corruption and how that plays out in society now against this election. It's a little bit like a deja vu because 21 years ago when we had the 2002 election, we also had a major earthquake in 1999. The economy was, as I write in the piece, really worsening. And the effects of these were very much impacting a lot of people, not just a specific group of people. And 
in this election, we sort of go into it in the same aftermath. The economy has been getting worse. The inflation has been increasing. And this earthquake just sort of unrooted how much the value of life, the human life, maybe doesn't matter because we do have regulations in place. They are just not enforced. And only in the aftermath are they talked about. And one thing that is not included in the piece, but actually is expected and was definitely talked about in the news in the aftermath of the earthquake in Turkey, there is a major earthquake expected in Istanbul. This level of corruption in construction in a much wider scale in Istanbul. So we are expecting, this is expected by 2030, according to experts, this can be sort of a prelude to a much worse history that we're, we will see eventually in Turkey. What's giving you hope for a better future in your home country? The youth. I mean, history is not linear. So, and there is this, I think there is this genetic coding that we do know how to survive in very unstable environment. What I also saw during this visit was the young people, the generation of people who have been ever connected, the digital generation that had not yet seen anything else than the last 20 years or more perhaps. But I think there is hope there that we cannot be guarded from what is available out there. One of the reasons that some people feel this election is consequential is not just because of what happens in domestic politics, but again, Turkey's part of NATO. There's a war and Turkey straddles that world between East and West and has all kinds of shifting alliances. Do people voting at home think about the aspect of NATO and part of the alliance and Putin, or is it they focus more on the domestic part of this? I believe when we look at the sort of the platform, the two main platforms running for the election, there is certainly foreign politics playing into it. On one hand, the National Alliance is looking towards the West and trying to recuperate the relationship with the U.S. and obviously remain as a member of NATO. And on the other hand, the opposition obviously fighting against is sort of more independent from the U.S., independent from NATO values. And it criticism, much criticism of the global politics. But this has always been the case for the sort of realpolitik strategy of Erdogan and AKP. So this, in that sense, is not new. I think what is more worrisome that also got even more emphasized after the earthquake, precisely also where the earthquake took place, is the influx of Syrian refugees. We have over three million in the country and... The situation is not getting better in the region for the influx to stop. And with the earthquake, people had become almost, for the first time, very overtly anti-Syrian, anti-refugee. And given the fragmentation in the society in terms of how many ethnic groups there are already, I think this is a sort of precarious impulse on the side of the people. So the election is May 14th, less than two weeks away now. If you had a hope for it, what would it be? And if you had a prediction for it, what would it be? My hope would be that it's just peaceful. Uh, in 2015, when we had parliamentary elections and the HDP had passed a minimum so that they could be part of the parliament, it had become very dangerous and bloody for a while. There were explosions, there was internal violence that was happening. I hope that whatever the result is, the transition will be peaceful. Of course, it will be a dream that Turkey sort of faces its own demons and asks 
major questions about what do we really mean for the future of this country? I think it's not just about one particular party. I think we are very much struggling with the human rights. And this is on a very across the board level. So it's not just ethnicity. It's not just different sexes. I just think that we can do better regardless whether we turn to the East or the West. Well, Amine, thank you so much for your story and your insights. It's really an invaluable perspective. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I really can't recommend you do anything except watch the endless coverage on the Beeb. But Michael, surely you can send us off into the weekend with something interesting to do. I got something interesting to do. Have you seen White House Plumbers yet, Ashley? No, everyone's talking about this. Okay, good. I was wondering if everyone had watched it just sort of dropped. It's the new five-part series about the men behind the Watergate break-in. And it stars Justin Theroux as G. Gordon Liddy and Woody Harrelson as E. Howard Hunt. And it's not so much all the president's men as it is, I think, kind of like this dark goofball comedy. It looks at the break-in less as the beginning of a long national nightmare and more of almost this Samuel Beckett-like comedy. It's no surprise, I think, because the writers and creators of it worked on Veep as well as the Larry Sanders show. So you kind of see where they're coming from. I like it and would suggest people check it out. It might be sort of a counterbalance if you've all been watching The Diplomat on Netflix. This is a little different political drama. So it's called White House Plumbers and it's streaming now on HBO Max. And you, my dear? Okay, Michael, I'm sorry. Like, you know me. I'm going to give you something coordination related. Maybe not coordination specifically. It's more royal related, but I've got to give a shout out to my friend Lauren Collins who recommended this incredible book and sent it to me. Ma'am Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. This is Craig Brown's 2017 work of art on the life and times of the sister of Queen Elizabeth II. It is not a conventional biography by any means. It's full of essays, lists, diaries, announcements, newspaper clippings, et cetera, et cetera, as well as you occasional parody that Craig is known and loved for. If you like Princess Margaret, if you like history, if you don't like any of those things, you will still enjoy this book. It is a literary romp. It's an homage to a woman who was astounding because of the fact that she was everywhere. And she's incredibly enjoyable to read about, especially when it's Craig Brown who's doing the talking. So again, Ma'am Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. All right. Well, we wish you all a very royal weekend. I hope you're drinking Pimm's Cups and tea and basically every beverage imaginable. Cheers. Long live the king. And Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thanks again for joining us.